Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To everybody out there, I hope you're having a great day. If after watching this video you find you enjoyed it or you learned something, do me a favor and smash the like button. Now, let's get started. Alleged serial killer Rex Huerman has now been incarcerated in Suffolk County for more than a month. He's now off unaliving watch and is said to be under constant monitoring to ensure his safety and that of others. Most of the hours of his day are spent in a 10-foot by 6-foot jail cell, and he reportedly is showing little emotion. He's gone from mostly lying on his bed to now participating in religious services and going to the rehabilitation center to take books out. He's also purchased toiletries, a pen, and a pad of paper from the prison commissary. Makes me wonder who's putting the money in his little account over there. Last Wednesday, Hewerman was subjected to a DNA cheek swab within the jail. And as all that was going down, law enforcement officials have been contacting prostitutes who may have had interactions with Hewerman before his arrest. Fairly certain the investigators have access to his phone records, both regular cell and burner phones, as well as his email and Tinder accounts. The investigators are seeking a greater understanding of his motives and activities. I think we know what the motives were. And the people monitoring his mental health are watching to see how he's going to change as the reality of his situation sets in. Can you imagine allegedly committing crimes like this? You probably can't because I can't. And then getting caught 13 years after the fact, at least for the three Gilgo Beach victims he's accused of doing in. What's going through his head? Does he entertain the thought he'll get out of this? Does that hope keep him going? Or is he kicking himself for getting found out if, in fact, he is the perpetrator of these crimes? Does he ever feel claustrophobic behind those bars? Does he freak out with the thought that he may never walk down a street in Manhattan ever again? Is he going to religious services to ask God for forgiveness. I don't see how he can really believe in God and then allegedly commit the crimes he's accused of. He'd be working for the other side, if you know what I mean. I'm so nosy. I want answers. I also like a little look-see around his wife's mind. What's she really thinking? Has she gotten to the point where she no longer wants to speak to him on the phone? They can't really have honest conversations, at least about the crimes, if he committed them. All their calls are recorded. The big brother and the big sister is always listening. So do they just shoot the shit about the weather? The state their house is in? Whether or not he needs money on his commissary so he can get deodorant? Maybe some Snickers bars? Again, I'm nosy. Did you hear that she and her kids went to live with her elderly and health-challenged father for a few days after they were suddenly booted out of their house and that they left the grandfather's house because they were worried that he would be unsafe if they were staying there? So it sounds like for the majority of the two weeks, they were actually sleeping 
not in their own car, mind you, but in a rental car because their own car had been seized. I mean, I can see how that would really upset anyone, let alone a child who has special needs. And apparently they weren't even given enough time to get their beloved cats out of the house. They have two cats and the authorities wouldn't give them enough time to find the cats. Naturally, the cats were hiding when all these strangers came in. So the family assumed that the authorities were going to take care of the furry felines. But instead, the authorities trapped the two cats, who were terrified, and then took them to a kill shelter. I'm sorry, but that is just wrong. You don't terrorize the cats and send them off to die just because the head of the family has been accused of these atrocities. Don't F with the family, and definitely don't F with the cats. Thankfully, Ellerup's lawyers were able to go and grab the cats before they were done in. The cats and the one dog are all reunited with the family, thank God. And yes, I am a crazy cat mother. Meanwhile, the GoFundMe for the family is up to more than $50,000. I'm very proud of people for being compassionate and caring like that. Topic change. That attorney John Ray, who represents two of the Ocean Parkway victims, continues to say Ellerup was complicit in her husband's solicitation and use of escorts in their home over the course of years. Ray insists he has the evidence to prove it. Ray said, quote, She was in this little home where she lived and he lived. She was upstairs when he would be downstairs getting jiggy with these prostitutes. I substituted the words getting jiggy for the other words because YouTube doesn't really like those, but I think you know what I mean. Ray went on to say that Hewerman spent enormous amounts of money on them, and it was a regular thing that happened. I think if Ray has such evidence, he should show it. He's making allegations that are so damaging to Asa Ellerup. I'm not going to lie, guys. I keep thinking that maybe Asa Ellerup had had enough of her giant husband, and therefore maybe she was okay with these other women coming in. Do you know what I mean? Is it possible that she thought they were just getting jiggy and she didn't realize that he was doing some other stuff with some of them later that landed them in burlap bags on Gilgo Beach? Just me speculating. Melissa Moore, who's the daughter of the Happy Face killer, went to visit Asa Ellerup at the house. She comforted Ellerup, she gave her a hug, she even stroked her hair. Ellerup gave Moore a tour of the home, which revealed that the bathroom door was custom-made for Rex's height of 6 feet 4 inches. That door had to be removed by investigators, so Ellerup nailed a curtain over the door frame so that they can have some privacy. For some reason, that gave me visions of the Don Wells and Candace Bly home. In fact, all of the home's bedroom doors have been removed. The Hewerman home, not the Wells home. As well as all the mattresses, Asa is thus sleeping on a chair. Her son Christopher has a blow-up mattress, which he has right next to his dog's bed. And poor Victoria is having to sleep on one of those giant bean bags that cannot be comfortable. 
According to Melissa Moore, the family is focused on rebuilding their home. I'm rather surprised by that. I know their finances may be dictating this decision, but some of their neighbors are never going to get over the fact that an alleged serialist lived there. The family is going to get the stink eye forever from some people who will unfairly blame them and unfairly shame them. Personally, I think Asa should sell that property, let somebody tear that house down, and let someone build something new or put a garden there. Apparently, it is extremely expensive to live in Long Island, so I think that land may have a lot of value. Unless, of course, it's tainted by its reputation. Moore said that Ellerop shared stories about when she first dated Hewerman, and she seemed to be dissecting her memories of Rex to see if there were ever any red flags that she might have missed. That makes a lot of sense to me because Carrie Rawson has said that in retrospect, after her father confessed to these crimes, she looked back at her life and saw so many different things about his temperament, his character, the way they had to sort of dance around his temper when he was in one of his moods. Moving on to another topic. Two females who disappeared in New York 30 years ago. Max Heuerman's arrest has reawakened interest in these two cases. On October 10th of 1991, 12-year-old Tiffany Dixon disappeared during her walk to school. In Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, she never made it to her 7th grade class. What's the connection to Rex Heuerman, you might ask? Apparently, two building filings with the New York Department of Buildings appear to suggest that Heuerman was working on a building just around the corner from where Tiffany lived. Her home was on Hart Street in Bushwick, New York. FYI, Bushwick is a neighborhood in the borough of Brooklyn. The June 1992 documents list Rex Heuerman as the filing representative for two jobs at 689 Hart Street in Brooklyn. So at the time, Heuerman was working as an apprentice for architect Harvey Rothenberg. That name sounds like a character out of The Godfather. So the first document Hewerman filed was for a job to install an interior fire alarm system. The second filing was for a job related to interior partitions. The building was being changed from a two-family dwelling to a community residence. Both filings note that they were pre-filed in May of 1992, and they do not indicate that any planning for the project began in 1991, which is the year when Tiffany vanished. The building Heuerman was working on was only 600 feet away from where Tiffany lived. Yikes. And two weeks after Tiffany disappeared, the remains of Sandra Acosta were discovered in Brooklyn. At the time, residents were fearful that there might be a serial killer in the area, suggesting that they felt Tiffany's disappearance and Acosta's murder were the work of the same person. Now, Hewerman has never been named a suspect in Tiffany's disappearance, and the police haven't commented on a potential link. But remember, Hewerman's search online for topics like 
10-year-old schoolgirl, 12-year-old schoolgirl. So he definitely has a thing for little girls. Sandra Acosta was 23 when she went missing. Five days later, transit cops found a head, hands, feet, and cut-up arms and legs in a pile on a weedy lot on East Street between 4th and 5th Avenues in the Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn. Sandra had last been seen alive five days earlier in Wyckoff Garden Park, a few blocks from her home. Her husband reported her missing, and Sandra's torso was not found, nor was any of her clothing. And here's a very interesting detail. There was no blood present on the remains. This would indicate that Sandra had been dismembered somewhere else before those remains were dumped on that weedy lot. A police spokesperson said the parts appeared to have been severed by a surgeon, or it looked like someone who knew what they were doing. Note that Sandra was slim and petite, standing only 4 feet 11 inches tall. Sounds a lot like the Gilgo Beach 4 victims' overall slight stature. Sandra left behind a son and a daughter. Whether Rex Heuerman had anything to do with these two cases remains to be seen. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Hey, smash that like button, leave me a comment, subscribe, and I'll see you next time.